It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi doctors weigh in on how best to combat opioid abuse. The opioid prescription rate in Mississippi over the past couple of years has come down, but the opioid pill count that's out there has gone up. Then on Everyday Tech, find out how to avoid scams, especially with giving season underway. And a safety expert has four tips for safe travel with little ones. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi doctors and medical providers are weighing in on newly proposed rules to combat opioid abuse. The Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure held a hearing about proposed rule changes from the governor's opioid and heroin task force. They include writing a seven-day supply at a time, drug testing, and checking the state's prescription monitoring website. Some are voicing concerns over time and costs. Dr. Hetty Mathias is an anesthesiologist. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier what she's hearing from fellow providers. Physicians are angry about continued rules and regulations requiring substantial computer-based or ancillary professionals in our office using time to document things for the government. We don't get paid for it. Um, It interferes with our... uh, interface with patients, and this was a shotgun approach to a problem that should already have a solution. You said that 30% of a doctor's time is spent handling electronic files? That is what most government and other uh, studies have shown, yes. So what do we do to manage this opioid crisis? The Pharmacy Board, the Board of Medicine, the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they already know who the deviant prescribers are. I've seen very little evidence that they go after them. And instead, they burden the physicians in the state who are already doing right by their patients with one-size-fits-all regulations that, one, don't fit the patient, and two, are a burden, terrible burden, to physicians. They know who the bad actors are. And if they don't, they can easily find out. All they need to do is look at prescribing patterns. And in many ways, we feel that they are making 
us do their job. Do you think that they understood your position? Absolutely. I think, if not the board, certainly the people in the room understand. What happens next in your mind? I think the Mississippi Medical Association, which is a a fairly well-respected and powerful organization representing 5,000 doctors, I think because they want these regulations junked and uh, for them to look and restart from from scratch, I have a feeling they will do that. He suggested regulations. Did they come from the governor's task force? Yes. Were there medical professionals on the task force? Uh, There were a few, yes. How is it then that the recommendations are gaining the ire of so many doctors when you did have input from physicians? Well, you know, the use of opioids by physicians in the state is really completely different physician by physicians. Surgeons use opioids for the most part for post-operative pain relief. Chronic pain management, people use them for another thing. Rheumatologists use them long-term for their, their patients with crippling diseases. Hospice uses it. Everybody uses opioids for different reasons. And they had a pain management physician on the board, I believe. They had an addictionologist on the board. But I don't know the breadth of uh, medical practitioners they had on the task force. So ultimately, you'd like to see them scrap it and start all over again and come up with a plan that takes all of these considerations into advisement. I want them to come up with a plan that accomplishes what they want it to accomplish. And that is less inappropriate prescribing, less opioid addiction, and fewer opioid deaths. And I think they already have the tools to do that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Mary Currier is state health officer. She tells our Desiree Frazier she hopes to see a plan for the public health issue. Well, I think we have a huge problem in the state. I think we have a huge problem in the country. Um, I think a lot of places here included are seeing increases in deaths due to um, Uh, illegal drugs as people are taken off of opioids. So I think we really need to think about this as we move forward and work together on this problem. It's not something that just one thing is going to take care of. And um, as a lot of folks have already said, we can't arrest our way out of it. These people are not bad people, uh, but they've been given prescriptions for a long time and may have been taking opioids for years and years. So we just don't need to kick them off the edge of the cliff. What's on the minds of folks that are here? I think a lot of people are concerned about how the, um, how the rules are going to affect their practice and their patients. Um, I'm personally, from a public health point of view, concerned about the people who are already addicted. You know, we have a lot of pain medication prescribed in the state, and a lot of it is for chronic pain. And so there are a lot of those folks who are addicted And if we stop giving them these opioids all of a sudden, then what happens to those people? It's tens of thousands of people. They're still addicted. And with a decrease in opioids to the people who are already addicted, we'll see an increase in heroin deaths and in HIV and hepatitis C. You talked about there are 200,000 Mississippians who right now um, are using opioids and may be addicted. If you look at the data from the prescription monitoring program, um, you can see that there are more than 200,000 Mississippians who have 
in 2014, got a prescription for opioids that was for 30 days, and the average number of those prescriptions was six. So most of those people aren't getting six prescriptions. There are a lot of people who got 12, so it covered the whole year. And then there are a lot of people who got one. We haven't broken it down that much. But of those 200,000 people, a good portion of those are people who are chronically taking opioids and are addicted. And I don't want those people to be pushed off a ledge with no safety net. Uh, They need to either be treated or have their doses tapered or taken care of in some way. What do you think the board can do about that? Well, I think if they take this in a stepwise fashion and if they work with physician groups and facility organizations um, to make sure that there are resources for those patients who are addicted and that physicians are allowed to continue to um, prescribe for them and taper the dose or Uh, however that's dealt with. We just need a plan. I think it's really, really important. One of the things they're doing is they're trying to tamp down on the production of people who are addicted, so decreasing the amount of opioids, the number of prescriptions. I think that's really important. Dr. Currier, thank you for your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Charles Miles is the president of the State Board of Medical Licensure. He tells Desiree Frazier the rules are changing to meet today's challenges. They are not overly burdensome. They had to be changed. They were formulated for the most part in 1972. A lot of things have changed since 1972. One thing that's changed is we have an opioid crisis that we didn't have in 1972. And this is getting worse and worse. This is certainly not to say that the opioid crisis is singularly caused by practitioners in Mississippi. But to be honest, we have to say that we're a part of the problem. So this is a a trial to see if we can clear up our part of the problem, and then we'll turn the heroin and the crack and this other stuff over to the DEA, MBN, and other law enforcement officers. Uh, But this is just a way for prescription writers to stop and think about what you're doing. When you sit down to write a prescription for an opioid, doesn't mean you shouldn't write it. Doesn't mean that it's not a drug that should be used, but somebody should stop and think about the situation. There was some confusion about um, how many they could prescribe and that kind of thing. Uh, Some thought it was seven. Uh, We heard that the board said it was 14 post-operative. What is the designation for uh, dispensing? The definition depends on the problem. There's acute pain. You fall down and sprain your ankle, you break your leg. Then you can write a seven-day supply and then a prescription for another seven days to be filled, if needed, at the time that one expires. Then if they come back to your office to see you, and the pain is still there, you can write another seven days and another prescription on top of that. But they'll need to come back to see you at your office at the end of two weeks. If somebody at the end of two weeks of management is still having to take three Oxycontin a day, maybe they should go back to their doctor and say, how are things coming along here? You know, is something off? Does it need to be checked again? I think so.
And so when you're talking about dispensing them, um, when do you become alarmed by how many numbers of seven they received? If you keep somebody on opioids for 21 days solid, the odds that they're going to still be on opioids five years from now is better than 50%. We like to keep it down to the lowest dosage that we can use for the shortest period of time. Most of the seven-day prescriptions that we give, the people don't use all of that. And they stick it up in their drug cabinet and somebody else gets it or it just sits there and have to throw it away. So the concern is that we don't override opioids. The opioid prescription rate in Mississippi over the past couple of years has come down, but the opioid pill count that's out there has gone up. So that may be an indication that we're writing fewer prescriptions, but each prescription is for more pill. Dr. Miles, thank you so much for your time. Sure, anytime. Medical Licensure Board Charles Miles says they will fine-tune the rules using input from the hearing. In other news, transplant recipients and the families of the donors are gathering to honor those whose untimely deaths gave new life to others. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. Kyra Barrett, John Edward Berry Jr., Peggy Sue Birdno. The University of Mississippi Medical Center is adding 53 new photos of organ donors to the center's wall of heroes. Mo Crozier received a heart from 20-year-old Christopher Haywood in 2015. Every person who's received an organ or transplant on behalf of them, we appreciate you so much for giving of your loved ones because your loss was great, but you made our lives so much better, and I do sincerely appreciate you. There are more than 1,000 Mississippians awaiting organ transplants. The number of donors in the state is slowly climbing, says Kevin Stump with the Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency. We're getting closer to 90 families being able to donate organs to be transplanted here in the state. We're always working very hard to continue to educate the public about donations so they can make an informed decision. Families of the donors were in tears. Grieving and grateful, Nina Griffith hugs Crozier after she speaks. Griffith is the sister of another donor, John Edward Berry Jr. He died in August and has donated both kidneys and a liver. He lives on in someone else, you know, that, you know, yeah, he, he, he's gone, you know, that he's in heaven, that he's rejoicing, but then also someone else is rejoicing because they got that life from him. 219 organs have been transplanted at UMMC this year. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, find out how to avoid scams, especially with giving season underway. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Michelle McAdoo with the Wilts Contraire, and today we're discussing how to identify and protect yourself from scams. So, Wilts, con artists have been around from day one, but now they're becoming much more advanced. How do we use tech to defend ourselves from being a victim? Well, the big thing that we can do, Michelle, is utilize the resources that we have available to actually research what some of these con artists are actually trying to pull over our eyes. Like you said, con artists have always been around, but in a technologically connected world, they're able to increase their audience. 
And now it's just not the con artist in your town, but this could be a con artist from halfway around the world. So we have to use those same tools in order to combat them. For example, some of the common scams going on around us now, we've uh, our, our country's seen quite a few catastrophic storms hit in different areas. So you have a lot of different charities that are reaching out and they're asking for donations or offering to help, or you have contractors coming around offering to help. We have credit reporting agencies that have been compromised, so you have a lot of information going out there asking for information from you in order to protect your credit moving forward. Utilizing technology, utilizing just the basic search engine and just talking to people will allow you to find out, are you donating your money? Are you giving your information to someone who is worthy of your trust? Because that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about con artists is we're talking about someone who is trying to prey on the trusting nature of people in general. You mentioned credit earlier. How do we protect our credit while shopping online? Protecting your credit is definitely important, especially with all we're seeing in the news lately of credit reporting agencies being compromised and the possibility of your information being out there for someone to use for less than legitimate, less than honest purposes. We've really got to pay attention to what's coming in and what we're doing out there. We've got to protect that information. For example, you really are going to want to start watching now when you're receiving different email because think about this if you receive an email from someone and it says dear sir or ma'am you know that's not a very personal message however if you were to receive one that says dear Michelle your mind's gonna instantly go towards the oh this person must know me I'm gonna pay attention a little bit more well now that this information is out there and been compromised now people not only know your contact information but now they can actually call you by name and make it more personal so that con artist now gets one extra leg up on appearing legitimate when they're conversing with you. What are some resources we can use to protect ourselves? The first tool that really comes to mind is the online tool. Utilizing search engines, now you can also listen to the voice of so many other people either in your neighborhood, across town, across your state, or even across the nation or world. My first resource has usually been my local attorney general's office. All state attorney general's offices will actually have a consumer protection division that will actually assist if you feel like you have been a victim of a scam or a hoax. Whether we're shopping for the latest widget, researching a charity organization, or even looking into a new doctor that we've decided we want to try to go check out, we need to remember that there are opinions and options that are available. Now, you know some opinions out there are worth about what you pay for them. So we still need to take things with a grain of salt, but the bottom line is look into it, be informed, be connected. You can search online, you've got neighbors and friends and other people you can talk to. Make sure you're doing those things and you're acting on the facts and not just acting on an emotion or being pressured into that, I must act now. No, take your time. Utilize the tools you have available to you because while all of us want to stay connected, especially in a digitally connected world, we need to also remember that we all need to stay aware. There are still quite a few good things out there to be done and to be had and to be heard. And we do still need to have trust in each other, but there's nothing wrong with also doing a little verifying while we're at it. We will talk more about online scamming on the next Everyday Tech, the show that comes on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. You can send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. 
For Wilkes Contraire, I'm Michelle McAdoo. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Whether traveling near or far during the cold weather season, safety experts say keeping children properly properly restrained could save lives. National Car Seat Safety Program Buckle Up for Life says following a few critical trips to correct tips to correctly install and secure a car seat can dramatically reduce risk of injury and death in a crash. Gloria Del Castillo is a specialist with Buckle Up for Life. She tells us their top tips to ensure safe travel. We have a few tips, and we have tied some fun phrases to them just to help parents remember. The first one we have is, you know, when parents and grandparents see the children, they tend to pinch those cheeks. So we're saying pinching more than just cheeks. What does that mean? (laughs) What we want parents to do is to make sure that the hardness traps are secure snugly on top of the child once the kid is in the car seat. So we're asking parents to do the pinch test, which is basically just trying to pinch a little wrinkle on the strap. And if you're able to grab that wrinkle, that means that the hardness are not tight enough. Then we have the inch test. And We do that to let parents know that car seats are not supposed to move more than an inch from side to side. They need to be installed really tightly in the vehicle. You have one called turkeys do fly. What does that mean? In this case, what we want parents to remember is that everything that is loose in a vehicle can become a projectile and hit one of the passengers, causing serious injury. So we're asking everybody to remember to secure suitcases, shoes, and even any turkeys or food that they're bringing um, for Thanksgiving. You have something called here, warm, cozy, and safe, and it's a piece of advice I never would have thought of. Can you tell us about that, please? So now that we are basically in the winter season and it is bundling up season, parents tend to dress their children with very cushy and puffy coats. Well, everything that is cushy and thick and puffy can compress if there is a crush, compromising the ability of the harness to protect your child. So we're asking parents to remove the coats before placing the child in the car seat. You can put the coat on top or you can just cover your children with a blanket. So what you're saying is that the harness isn't tight enough against the child because the coat is thick and soft and it will push, meaning they're they're leaving space between the harness and the child's body? That is correct. What is BYO seat? By your own seat. So we basically don't recommend uh, renting car seats. And as you know, many of the travel that happens during the holiday season is done by air. And parents tend to get to the destination and then rent a car seat because it's a lot easier than traveling and carrying your car seat through the airport, right? So we just need to make sure that parents know that renting a car seat may pose 
some dangers. Uh, number one, car seats do have an expiration date. And unless you're familiar with your car seat, you probably don't know what the expiration date is. Also, car seats get recalled. And unless you are carrying the recall list with you, you really wouldn't know how to check for that. And, you know, ultimately, you know your own car seat and you know how to install it properly. So, you you know, you should take advantage of the fact that most airlines do allow you to check your car seat for free. Some great tips. Gloria Del Castillo is a child passenger safety expert at Cincinnati Children's and Senior Specialist of Community Engagement for Buckle Up for Life. Thank you so much, Gloria. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play Store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.